On today's episode, we talk to Emily Vass, a death doula. What a death doula is, what they do, the accreditations of a death doula, and even some pros and cons of what it is to be a death doula. Ooh, doula-la. Let's talk about death, baby. Let's talk about grief and mourning. Is it argumental or existential? What's it mean to me? Let's talk about death. Hi, I'm Benny Capal, and I'm a funeral professional. And I'm Nicholas Capal, psychologist. Hey, Nick, let's talk about death. Let's do it. Okay, and welcome to another exciting episode of Let's Talk About Death. Today we have Emily Vass. It is awesome to have you, Emily. You are a death doula. You work with families dealing with death, and you're, you're here to educate on what a death doula does. Get more into it. What, who is Emily Vass? Oh, thanks, guys. I am so excited to share that with you. Um, on Clubhouse and Instagram, I am known as the Native Death Diva, and I am helping to pioneer this new profession that we've seen pop up in the last about three to five years is when it's become familiar to hear the term death doula. What is that? Who are these people? There's a lot of misconception in the community, but also within the death and funeral industry. So I can't wait to dive in and really talk about those things and then my perspective. So I bring a really unique perspective to this coming not only from the indigenous community, but from the military community where death is just handled really different in both of these communities. And, um, you know, that's part of my background. We'll get into it because a lot of people want to know, like, how how and why did you get here? (laughs) Maybe we should start with what is a death doula, to be honest with you. I, I don't think I'll, I think it's becoming something, but I don't think a lot of our listeners will know what that is. A death doula. Sure. OK, so how about we do this? We'll explain why I'm comfortable with death and then what I'm doing in the death industry. <laughs> that sounds so, great. OK, so growing up biculturally in America, really, I was experiencing three cultures, if we put it that way. Um, Within my family, my mother came from Czechoslovakian and German descent. They were one of the few English farmers in an all Amish community. So they handled death as um, their family with a Catholic base, but respect to the Amish community. Very different than my father's family, who handled it as traditionally as they could, considering they had been pretty colonized and a lot of their traditions taken away from them. But the overall perspective from my dad's side of the family is death is so natural. It's expected, and we love our living into and through their death, and we're very much a part of this process, and we are hands-on in that. Um, they, I saw them handle it. They still had a lot of um, anxiety as far as within our community, death happens more often tragically and at a very young age compared to my mother's family, which their death anxiety was around um, hospital visits and their religion, like added a lot of fear (laughs) to death too. So I saw my family as I grew up, I was always a part of it. But what what I witnessed is the different management of grief. And I very early had that core belief that the unhealthy management of grief is what ruins the living relationships. And then that changes quality of life. 
right? So that was kind of breathing in me my entire life because I'd always been around death and a part of it. So when I came to to be a co-ed in the university, I fell in love with my first grief, death, and dying class. I was so annoyed at the other co-eds who weren't taking it seriously. Um, but I had a lot more, a lot of these kids had never lost a grandparent right. at 18 or 20, let alone, I had already dressed a dead body. I had worked solely with the funeral director to manage the care of the services. I had already done hair and makeup on dead bodies for my family. So I had just a really unique experience mm -hmm. in this. And so by the time I did my graduate work, I knew I wanted to do this. But back in the late 90s, you had to have a nursing degree to go into palliative care. And that was really only option. Well, I was finishing grad school and wanting to start my family. I didn't want to redo a whole program. So I went um, towards psychology. And so the goal was to be an LMFT, a licensed marriage and family therapist, is what I thought I was going to do with my education and help grieving families in that manner. But being a sailor's wife, lots of things changed as we traveled the world and I supported his career. Um, so I have a background in mental health. Um, and so I had been watching one of my mentors on social media for about three years. Um, the fabulous Ailua Arthur. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her and her work. And then I decided like, I didn't know about getting the certification because you know, I'm trying to decolonize my mind. And I'm like, this is something my community has always done. Why am I going to pay for this certificate that I don't really need because the profession hasn't been professionalized yet? We don't have a licensing board, which is a whole fun conversation yep. we'll get into when we talk about who is a death doula and why. But I knew I knew this, the communities that I work in, by and large, the military community and just the general public, they want to see that education and those extra certifications, right? And I made some great contacts and networkings. And so I did go ahead and go through the Going With Grace program, mm -hmm. which was fabulous because it really helped. Um, I think I came in and I, I helped people understand. I love that you're here, but you're, you may not be ready for it yet. Absolutely. Because, because, but, but we need you. The funeral industry and the death industry need you. Yeah. Let's. And so it was interesting. But so, what is a death doula? So, what, how that equates to? Are we are helpers? We are educators and advocates in a big gap in our community that is struggling. A lot of death doulas we're seeing statistically are other professionals that have experienced such compassion fatigue because of the brokenness of our system. Yeah. We're seeing clergy, we're seeing social workers, we're seeing therapists who want to have a more active part in helping families, but their hands are tied because of their caseloads, because of their personal belief system, for whatever reason. We're seeing those professionals come over and now developing this new profession. Mm. So I could talk forever, but let me stop there and see if you have questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, that's awesome. And anybody who's dealing with uh, the death profession in general, um, it, it's a calling. It's not for everybody. And I think it's incredible, especially what you do, because as a funeral professional, 
we do have the opportunity to help each and every family. But for sometimes we also have other caseloads. We have other families coming in. We don't have that time to prep them sometimes. We don't have that time to aftercare, uh, which they, they so need. And so what happens is they end up going to see possibly a psychologist like Dr. Nick here because they never got to really get through their grieving process or they understand their own grieving process. So I think it's absolutely awesome that you're educating because that is the main reason we're having this podcast. It's let's talk about it. Let's open this discussion about what we do and why we do it. So incredibly, it's nice to know that there's other professions out there that are willing to work with families as well as professionals like myself in the funeral profession to help because the more that we can educate these families, the more that we can help these families, that's really what we're here to do is to take care of the living. Um, so absolutely. So I, I love your story. I love everything about it. Uh, Dr. Nick, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. You know, again, I want to say this is definitely something that we we as a society need to work on. You know, we've talked in prior episodes about how society in general has become more individualized than societal. And um, I think another big part is, you know, you were talking about burnout. And I, I think burnout is a big thing for anybody dealing in the death industry. Um, I think there's only so much we can give. And at a certain point, if we're not careful, we give too much. And then I think that we bring it home, we become depressed or anxious, you know, I think it brings up our own existential angst, you know, that whole idea that, you know, we work with death on a daily basis, but, you know, you can't help but bring it home to your own thoughts. You know, what is it going to be like when I die or, um, you know, my brother dies or, you know, we're identical twins. So we have a special bond that most people would not be privy to unless you're a twin um, that, you know, they talk about ESP and all that stuff, but it's deeper than that. Um, I, I think that's part of my soul is Ben and vice versa. Um, so I guess what I'm saying to you is, so I've been told through my schooling, I've actually had professors tell me not to go into specialize in grief and loss because a, there's no money in it, which I thought was terrible being told that, but B, also that everybody knows how to grieve. And to me, that was terrifying to hear because even as me, a person that's been around a fourth generation funeral home, basically lived around death, I still have questions and concerns and, you know, I'm still working on me and how I feel about it. So... Again, I think this is all part of the stigma that's attached to death. You would know this very well working in the death industry. But I also think it's a deeper thing that most people just don't, they don't know. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to know the answers. And I think it's beautiful that you're out there helping educate people. Oh, thanks, guys. How do you, as a death doula, uh, take care of the actual individual that is dying? Excellent question. So if we are blessed to know at diagnosis that we have this exit window, this luxury of an exit window. We can sit with this person and really address what is your death anxiety about? Is it about leaving your affairs messy and chaotic for your surviving spouse or your children? Is it about you're worried about what treatment will look like or that your family won't support you in your chosen treatment plan? What, if I can get that person to identify that and to start to think about, they have a lot of control over how they transition out of this life. How do they want to end well? 
what would that look like? And because we find that a lot of individuals, their family is going to tell them, stop talking like that. We're fighting this. We're getting treatment. You know, and, and the dying person says, I'm tired. I'm ready to go. I feel it in my spirit. And it's coming alongside them to be that advocate and that gener- gentle conversation starter. Because if I can come in and facilitate that family meeting, a lot of families will calm down just because there's a stranger present and give the dying person the space to really be heard. And I can ask those probing questions and let it be known, like, this is why it's important that you stop saying what you're saying to your dying dad or dying mom. They know it's hard and they don't want to make it harder, but this is how they're choosing to do their treatment from here on out. And, you know, every death doula, her and her business or he and his business are going to be as unique as their own personalities and their strengths right now, which is kind of the hard part about identifying what is this profession and who are these people? Um, How I like to explain it to people is I say, I come in as a wraparound service. And what I do is I'm the caregiver's caregiver, the helper's helper, and the professional's professional. Mm. I help families understand, depending on when they find me, that, that makes a difference on which services I offer and how I help. But even just taking a family aside and saying, here's the grief and bereavement resources in your community that align with your lifestyle and your belief and your values. And guess what? We don't have to take that first therapist that your network referrals pass out. Absolutely. We can get that referral and switch it to the person you want. This is how we vet and find the right match because I know from from working in the mental health field how important it is to build that rapport, right? And and sometimes what's happening is families are getting, yeah, they get approved for it, but they have a six week wait list to get yeah. an appointment. Yeah. So, well, no. Right. Not, right. It's the broken system of generally insurances just pop out the first three to five popular referrals. And families are stuck in their chaos that they don't even know it's an option to say, hey, now I have this referral, but I need you to change it to this provider who can see me tomorrow. Well, and not not even to mention that there is some therapists out there that just aren't trained well in death, in grief and loss. You know, they could be Mm -hmm. a fabulous clinician with marital counseling or family counseling or, you know, depression, anxiety, suicidality. But when it comes to death, they just don't either A, don't have experience in it or B, have not been trained in it. So it it, it comes, I I agree with you. It's a, there is somewhat of a broken system going on here. What I, what I find is fascinating. So you will vet the therapists that are handed to them. Well, I teach them how to do that. Oh, right. I, I, I teach them that it's an option for them to choose their therapist, that they don't just get stuck with what the referral says. Absolutely. Right. Like, let's look at this. Is this a good fit? Because it's a crucial time, as you well know, to get them in. And there's so much that if we can have that visual rapport, that's really important in marginalized communities, mm-hmm. right? If we can have that visual rapport going in and that belief that somebody's willing to help me, we're also willing to do the work ourselves, mm-hmm. right? We're willing to be in that safe space. 
So, because as, as you guys know, when it comes to families managing this confusion and chaos, one or two people are going to do it. It's either going to be the most educated person in the family because yep. they're, they're used to being outside their comfort zone. The family's going to rely on them and they're going to willingly take on that burden, but they need to be in their grief. Or it's going to be the loudest, most extroverted family member. And that's not always the safe thing. Just because they always have an answer doesn't mean they always have the right one. Okay. So if a, a death support specialist can come in and help the family and, and just kind of be that gentle guardrail to say, here's our survivor's checklist. Th these are the things that we're going to do. It's also going to remove a lot of the stress from our funeral professionals, right? Because they are already really thin, and the more help and support that they get, they have the time to do their talents and their giftings and to open up more time and space for their families, which is already rare. Absolutely. Absolutely, Emily. And I'll be honest with you, too. It would be, it would be a blessing and a godsend. Um, for And I speak for all my funeral professionals out there to have somebody who educates family the importance in why we do what we do, why we have funerals, why we have visitations, why we have memorial gatherings. Why is that important to meet as a group? And it, right now is a very challenging time because of COVID, right? We're, we're not used to a pandemic, too. So on top of dealing with grief death, loss. They're dealing with isolation. They can't have their communities with them. They can't have the regular. It's hard to get into offices. And if you can, a lot of times it's Zoom like this, which honestly, some people need that person-to-person -person contact to deal with grief and loss, or they may, may need a group or anything. And as, as much as we as professionals do spend quite some time with these families, they're still in a lot of the time shock. So even if we're talking to them about certain things, sometimes they're not really grasping it because they're dealing with their own anxiety, grief, anger, all of that, all entwined while it's been three days since the death occurred, right? So mm -hmm. somebody like you that can round out the edges, right? Somebody who's there from possibly even before the death, during the death, and then after the death would be an incredible to to not only help the family, but would help everybody who's involved, every death professional that's involved, hospice worker, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you were talking, I want to ask two questions. One, will insurance co uh, companies cover a death doula? That's one. And then two, accreditation. I know you were saying your profession is working on trying to be more professional, right? Trying to have some sort of accreditation or whatnot. Um, what's the goal in that as of uh, death doulas or any anybody who's going into the same field you are? Sure. So as far as the insurance portion of it, overwhelmingly, we are cash pay. And so a lot, um, because we are the hippy dippy um, part of society, for a lot of part, we do have sliding scales and do donations from other people that we've serviced who want our services to be available. So that's also a very interesting concept that we're seeing in the industry is having this circular business plan, which drives our accountants and our spouses absolutely nuts. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. <laughs> um, so there's, but it is interesting. There are um, a loophole, so to speak, and a lot of long-term care plans. Mm. If families are blessed enough to have the privilege of a long-term care plan, there is a position where you can hire a helper mm. to help with non-medical compassion care. Awesome. 
So we're hearing about that. That's not quite a standard. It's just a possibility that some people have come across. But overwhelmingly, at this point, it's a cash pay um, for our clients. Not to mention that you're kind of stigmatized in two different areas. You're stigmatized in death, and you're also stigmatized in therapy. Because coming from a very old school, traditional um city that I come from, there is still this misunderstanding that therapy is a sign of weakness. So I think we've done a lot of good things. And I think we're moving away from that um, societal to societal. But I think right now there is still this, especially for males, it is still a sign of weakness to go see a therapist. So hats off to you for for being in a double stigmatized position that you are in. Yes. Well, and the thing is, because I am very passionate about raising up other death support specialists, specifically in the indigenous community, because it's such a natural transition. And I really want to help kind of grandfather them in before we get these licensure and education right. things in. Right. So that's that's one of my focuses. So and it's a really split within the death doula community on having a governing board. Because here's the thing, right now, um, anybody can walk outside their front door and say, I'm a death doula, and this is what I do, and this is how I can help you. Mm -hmm. And that can be dangerous on so many levels, you know, because we have nobody looking at the morals and the ethics and the motivation behind this or somebody who may have very good intent but not have the education or the expertise to be doing the work that they think they're able to do. Right. So that that's the scary side and why a lot of us are calling for the professionalization and the licensure and the accreditation. Now on the other side, as you guys well know, no amount of education or practical internship apprenticeship, is going to prepare you for what this work is. So it's confusing, right? Like this is a very interesting thing, but if you look at them, so it's not required that we're registered, but we do have a governing alliance, which is trying to move forward and getting us um, some kind of licensure accreditation. Um, and through them, I've, I've, I've lined up, it's NIDA and it's, I've taken an ethics test to tell them, you know, to show what my thoughts are for morals and ethics. And I've gotten a proficiency badge from them and I pay dues just to help facilitate the conversations on how we look at education and professionalism and what are the things that need to be considered as we come together. Because nationally, there's less than 600 registered in the country. So there's not a lot of us out there. And so I'm in Florida and I call Florida God's waiting room because a lot of people come <laughs> to retire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. They're on and the other so, side of the hill at that point, right? The old snowbirds, yeah. huh? I think that's what we call them, the old snowbirds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. And so it's recognizing last year we only grew by five. Oh, so wow. we now have 30 death doulas in the state of Florida. How do you register that, for that? Yeah. So, well, and that's through NIDA the national end of life doula alliance that they have right like we're on their list and so that's kind of our right now how we're saying hey these they've looked at my proficiency they've checked me for morals and ethics and i can list 
my education. I have a bachelor's in sociology. I have a master's in human relations. I have a 20-year work history in mental health. This is what's qualifying me because I'm joining this professional organization before it's required that I do. Is there doulas all over the States? Because like we're in Michigan, you're in Florida. Do you guys have a way of connecting to other doulas? So if a, you know, if a family wants, you know, a doula, but they're like, I don't, I don't know where to go, you know? Yes. Yes. So there's several ways you can go to the NIDA directory and we're on there. Um, Alua Arthur is going to be publishing her directory of all of her graduates soon. Um, but we, we're a pretty tight knit community because as you said, we're doubly stigmatized mm-hmm. no, <laughs> and we want we respect the fact that this is, even though I may interview with a family, I may not be the best fit for them. Right. And it's super important for me to do a warm handoff and say, you know, I really feel based off of your family's lifestyles and values, this person would naturally fit and serve you better right. than I could. Right. And it's, it's, it's being okay to have that conversation. And it's, even though I'm willing to do the work, am I the best person for this work? Well, Emily, I think it's about time we have a Q and a here. So I, I hope you're ready because we're ready for some Q and a. Okay. Q and a, Q and a, everyone loves that Q and a. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's the first question. Um, Doula in training. Hi, I'm planning on training as a death doula, something I've wanted to do for a long time. But my question is, and sorry if it sounds weird, but how do you find families that need help? Does one advertise their services or approach a hospice? Any help, advice is most welcomed. Oh, wonderful. I love that. So we talk about in the industry, it's be prepared. It's going to be about three years before your death doula work is a sustainable income. This is going to be your side business for a while. So that's the first piece of advice I would give to someone who's in training. It is becoming more popular for hospices and hospitals to hire a death doula. I, and I would love to see as word gets out to two funeral directors that were helpers that they may create a position for us to come in and to assist them so that they can be more efficient in their work, right? Mm. And so we're kind of still so early in this profession that we're creating our own jobs. It's really finding where you have your influence, where people are willing to have that discussion. So you definitely have to have some entrepreneurial skills to tap into. Um, but overwhelmingly, what I'm seeing among my peers is that they're getting their connections um, from faith-based um, organizations and churches, like senior ministries. Others um, are focusing more on special needs and terminal children, medically fragile and terminal children. If that's where they call, you know, have a calling to, they go to Ronald McDonald House or they go to their big hospital and say, hey, this is who I am and this is how can I help? Do you have a position for me? How can I help? Um, so you do have to have those entrepreneurial skills, but I definitely, um, I advocate for myself while I'm doing a lot of education, going into employee groups yeah. and having discussions and saying, this is how grief is hitting your bottom line. You need to readdress this. Let me help you have this conversation with your middle management. 
Um, so yeah, and then connecting with your local funeral homes and counselors too, because a lot of times the counselors and the therapists, they give homework, right, for their grieving um, clients, but who's at home to help Absolutely. hold the hand and make sure that front room gets cleaned out this week, right? Like a family could hire me to come in and go through the survivor's checklist or say, hey, what did your therapist suggest you work on? Is it getting all the paper clutter off the kitchen counter? Let me sit down and, and do that with you. So yeah, you have to have the entrepreneurial skill to find those jobs yourself. I like what you said there. And I, re I really like what you, what you mentioned about not necessarily helping the families, but also the the professionals in what they're doing, um, because a lot of uh, uh, death professionals get overlooked, um, and they don't uh, a lot don't realize that we have feelings too, we have grief too, and we become part of these families as well, and we go through a little bit of the grieving process at times with them. And sometimes we do get left in the, in the back, you know, get out of here, funeral director. You're, you know, we'll, we'll get to you when we need to. And, and Dr. Nick as well, the psychology field, I'm sure you feel the same that you sometimes get overlooked that you actually need help too, um, with your own, um, grief and, and loss. Uh, but also, um, I just, I think that's just incredible. I think it's a great, and I, you know, I, I th hope that gives message out there to anybody who's interested in possibly going down that road and becoming a death doula. I think it's incredible. I hope, I hope the best that you get accredited and just things go up. I mean, the mental health is, is, is keep, it keeps going, right? They're, they're finding out more and more and they're finding out how important mental health is. And especially after a pandemic, we're going to need as much help as we can get. So, uh, Dr. Nick, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I was going to ask you as, as a, obviously with HIPAA and stuff like that, we got to be careful what we talk about, but important, most important thing, have you noticed an increase since COVID with your line of work? Well, absolutely. I think people are so overwhelmed and they're finally forced to talk about it. Yeah. We could, you know, and, and as you well know, as a society, we were really bad at the death thing mm -hmm. before 2020. And now it's been compressed and more chaos has been thrown in with less resources. Like we can't even grieve poorly like we did before 2020. Right. We're, we're having to learn new grieving tactics. Um, but I think the blessing in that is more people are willing to address the stigma and the confusion and willing to talk about it. Let's talk about it. Uh, <laughs> yes. Emily, I got another question. I got another question for you here. Uh, need some insight. So I stumbled across being a death doula and currently work as an RN. And I am also a Reiki practitioner. I enjoy caring for the dying person. And I'm wondering what the role of a death doula is. Can you tell me about what you enjoy most about your work? What don't you enjoy about it? Any insights would be great. Thanks. Oh, wonderful. So yes, um, I think this person is an excellent candidate bringing so many things. She's bringing the science mind, being a nurse, but also being a Reiki practitioner, which is energy healing and movement is um, particularly amazing for this field because it's our belief that touching and using our voice, like those are the senses that are going to help people transition at the end, right? Like there's this Hollywood idea that we're all going to have these last epic conversations. 
generally that's not how transitioning happens. Um, if we're even so, lucky to have conversations, you know? Yes, it, it is a luxury to have that exit window and to plan what a good death looks like. Um, so this person definitely sounds like an amazing candidate to consider. I think talking to as many uh, death workers, a death doulas, um, I, I prefer the term death worker just because of my indigenous heritage and we've always had that profession within our community. Um, having the conversation with as many people as possible. What I love is being able to come in and help families have that sense of comfort because they're trying to function in chaos and it, it's not going to happen. They're compounding their grief, right? And if I can come in and help deter that and give space, let's sit with these feelings. Let's be with these emotions. Let's not act out on our family members who are also confused and grieving, right? Like I love being able to guide them to the therapist who can do the heavy work with them, right? To help them facilitate those uncomfortable conversations. I always say I'm a conversation starter. I help facilitate that. Um, I, I love sitting vigil with families. Um, I'm currently in mourning myself, so I'll take a year off of sitting vigil and being with families at the transitioning. But I also, I know it sounds weird to say this, but I love being with the families during active death to help them understand, to let them know what is coming, what is natural, and to help deter their death anxiety. Because if they can have an educated understanding of what's happening and that this is normal and expected, then it's they're not going to be in panic. They're not calling the EMTs in when we already know what the plan is, right? We're not re-traumatizing ourselves by the first responders doing compressions until somebody in the family calls it off. Like that is more traumatizing, right? And so it's, it's, it's being able to have those conversations with families and prepare for a peaceful transition and helping them understand because as, as you guys know, it's been about uh, over a hundred years since people have naturally died in their homes. And so we, we don't have the skills that we used to have. So it's being able to reintroduce, this is very natural and very healthy. And this, this is going to help your grieving process if we're aware ahead of time, rather than just experiencing it and reacting. That's where things get dangerous from a mental health standpoint. Right. What I don't like about it the invoice and the billing and the collecting money, mm -hmm. you know, I, for me, it's commute. It should be community care, but at the same time, at the end of the day, my family needs money. Right. Um, so it's, it's having my bleeding heart be a businesswoman. And mm -hmm. for that, I've just had to delegate that business administration out yeah. so that I can be the heart and the face of it. And then I, I have someone else who handles that business administration because that that's the hard part for me. Oh, absolutely. And I can tell you from any, any uh, death professional it, that we all feel you on that. It's, it's the toughest part to uh, also realize you are a business too. Um, and you have, you have, you, the building has to stay open and you got to feed yourself and your family too. So uh, how do people get a hold of you? So if someone has a question specifically to you, Emily, uh, how can they get a hold of you? Where can they find you? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. 
Yes, of course. Well, um, and social media is a newer thing for me, but 2020 has changed how we do business, right? So we um, Instagram at Native Death Diva. You can email nativedeathdiva at gmail.com. Those are probably the quickest ways. Um, I have a website that's up and coming, nativedeathdiva.com, but it literally says right now it's under construction. (laughs) So um, because before I really didn't, I had so much in my community, I had more than enough to handle. However, with the switch of 2020 and then myself going into mourning and dropping over half of my services, um, you know, I'm kind of acting more as a death matchmaker, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> a consultant. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and then I'm doing a lot more education for bigger groups. Like I said, employee groups, doing a lot of speaking. Um, and it's it's giving me time to work on, I have an ebook coming out. That's my comfort care plan, um, which is going to be something that people can write down what how they want to be comforted. Their future nice. grievers can awesome. be you know, can forgive themselves when they look back at their loved one's handwritings with the instructions of the sounds and the the things they wanted to feel and hear when their voice had left them. That's a beautiful thought. You know, I, I never really thought about that. We spend a lot of time making birth plans, but we don't spend a lot of time on making death plans. That's, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's a good thought. Yes, yes. Well, there's death planners out there. And which people are confused by that, but still, I, I don't, I didn't find one that had enough prompts in it that really took it deep. Like it covers the legal and the medical, but there's nothing out there handling the social emotional. And that's the conversation that I'm, I'm starting. How can grievers really know, you know, because at the end, that's what a lot of grief is about is did I do enough? They don't have that affirmation. Right? right. But if we can create this tool to have the conversations, it's going to be reassuring to say, hey, I used their favorite blanket. I played their favorite music or right. burned their favorite scents. I told them the favorite stories. Hey, I protected the space from that annoying relative coming in and running their mouth. Right. Like that's what my yeah. comfort care plan has. Like there's some <laughs> people I don't want at my deathbed. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah, you don't want to get that. You don't want to get that pink slip, right? Like, sorry, you just, I don't want you by my deathbed. I just, sorry, you, you know. Well, I think it's amazing from your families. I think you're doing a wonderful job. Just keep it going. I'm sure death doula will be a, a norm, a normality soon. Thanks, Emily, for being with us. Of course, thank you, guys. Well, I thought this was a very interesting episode, and I'm glad that she was on the show. I, I, I honestly, I, I've heard of death doulas, but. Uh, to what extent and what they do and where their profession is at right now. I, I had no idea. It is a death professional. Like it's awesome to know that there's others out there that are, that are willing to help the the grieving process and the dying process as well. Um, so, but to all of you out there, thank you for tuning in. If you have any uh, questions or you have any thoughts, you can email us at let's talk about death pod at gmail.com. You can check us out on Spotify or Apple podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts, leave us a review that helps out a lot and uh, keep, keep tuning in because if you ain't talking about death, you're not living. <laughs>